Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hi, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks of Radio. This is your host, Lori LeBay, founder of the show, the resource website, and the blog, and the Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture webinar series, along with the new dementia chats. Here at Alzheimer's Speaks, we believe in giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss and their care partners, empowering everyone to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, ensure the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people how to live with the disease, not as the disease. I don't know if our channel expert who has early onset um, will be able to join us today. Rick Feltz pops in and out sometimes. He's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, as well as business professionals and advocates. So if Rick is able to make it, I will definitely pull him into the conversation. As you know, we strongly believe here that collaboratively we can shift our caregiving from crisis to comfort by sharing our knowledge, our insights, and our passions. And we encourage you to join us on this mission. We would love to hear your voice. So please utilize the chat box, or you can always call in live to join the conversation at 714 364-4757. That's 714-364-4757. And you'll just have to push one to go ahead and uh, get into my waiting room. We have a great show for you today and a couple of wonderful guests. Uh, We've titled it Stamp Out Alzheimer's Disease. And the women that I have with me today are extremely passionate about getting a commemorative uh, stamp for Alzheimer's disease to help with uh, not only awareness, but with funding for for research and um, services needed for those dealing with the disease. Kathy Skiggins worked at the U.S. Postal Service uh, headquarters in Washington, D.C. for 13 years prior to resigning in 1982, and that's where she met her late husband, Gene and they married in 78, merging their families. Her and Jean, um, her husband Jean was officially diagnosed with dementia in 1990, and he passed away in 1999. In about 1997, Kathy began sharing her story, and um, she actually testified in 1988 uh, before a general assembly on behalf of the Medicaid waiver bill And she's attended um, the 12th Alzheimer's Public Policy Forum in Washington, D.C., 
where they visit the, the members on the hill. And she has just done all kinds of, of different additional uh, fundraising and research um, projects that she has, has supported um, along with caregiver support groups. So Kathy is just so active and so passionate on this issue. Um, it's going to be wonderful to hear what she has to say. So welcome, Kathy. How are you doing today? I'm fine, Lori. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Well, I appreciate you taking the time today. What you're doing is, is extremely important. I also want to introduce uh, Linda Eberman. Lim- Linda has not only lost one, but two loved ones to Alzheimer's disease. In 1994, at the age of 81, Linda's father began to show symptoms of dementia, and he died in 2001. In 1997, her husband Richard was diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment at the age of 57. While they were both um, at their high points of their career with the University of California, this was a tough time for a diagnosis to, to hit. They were proactive in seeking out the diagnosis and therapeutic uh, intervention. But uh, in 2008, Richard was in his early um, to middle stages of the disease. And it was about that time Linda was forced to make one of the toughest decisions of her life, where she decided to, that it was time she had to place her husband into a care facility, not something that any of us ever foresee ourselves doing um, or having to to work through. And this year in March, Richard passed away. Linda decided um, that she really wanted to fundraise for a stamp for Alzheimer's research. And she saw what it did for breast cancer. And after Richard passed, she found that Kathy Skiggins had already started down this path. So the two of them have really kind of joined forces and joined voices to raise awareness. So welcome, Linda. How are you doing today? Well, thank you so much, Lori. I'm so thankful that you're having us on your program today. Well, I think it's I think it's great. I always like to start the show out, even though I gave a, a little glimpse as to your uh, journey with dementia. I always like to ask uh, each of my guests what their life was like before dementia and then how it changed um, through that process. And, Kathy, I'm going to go ahead and let you start, if you wouldn't mind giving people just a little bit more of a personal glimpse of how this had changed your life. Okay, Lori. Well, thank you so much. Uh, First of all, I want to just correct that I testified before the Maryland General Assembly in 1998. It wasn't 1988. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you for correcting that. That's okay. That's all right. Um, Jean and I had a, a pretty good marriage, I thought. We had our moments, like any, anybody else. But he was also 20 years older than I, and um, uh, we we just had a great life. Uh, we brought together the, the five children, my three and his two, and um, we all seemed to be doing well. Jean was a little bit strict, but I, the, my children will tell you that that was the best thing for them. Uh, they've all grown up to be wonderful adults, and I'm very proud of all of them. Um, we used to go on trips um, to Florida uh, every spring break, and uh, Jean was just, you know, he could drive that, that path with his eyes closed. And uh, I remember one time just uh, stopping for gas, and as we 
went back to get on the highway, he turned the wrong way. Uh, that's the one thing that sort of stayed with me, uh, you know, uh, that something was not quite right. But um, we we determined that uh, through the years, and he was director of uh, procurement by the U.S. Postal Service there at headquarters, so his mind had to be very sharp. Um, before that, you know, we were having a, a few incidents where, uh, you know, you, you sort of lose things and, um, you know, repeating some things or needing a little more help with the driving and all. But he was driving to work, which was uh, now taking him uh, almost, it could take you at least two hours to get in and, and back because we were, uh, we're about 40 miles outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Um, so he himself uh, had had uh, concerns and had gone to the doctor asking him about this. So I didn't know that he had done that until we went into the doctor's office and, and they gave us, the, you know, the, they said that he had had a, a stroke. But there was no signs of of a stroke. You'd think a stroke of, you know, being very physical that you could see, but we, we saw nothing like that. And uh, they referred him over to NIH uh, for, they were doing studies and, and referred us over there. So it was it was then that we, we went, we, we took part in a 14-week study for a medicine called Cognex, uh, and uh, which they said at the end was causing problems with the liver. But uh, the official diagnosis was was where, uh, you know, at NIH when they told us, uh, and his two children and my daughter were in the room with us, and uh, they they said, Mr. Siggins, uh, you know, we have, um, we did confirm the stroke, it's in one part of the brain. They said, but you have Alzheimer's disease, and we strongly recommend that you get your affairs in order. Um, well, I didn't know anything about this disease. All I knew is that as we were having more uh, arguments and, um, you know, because of things that he was kind of losing control on. And uh, so I, I had no idea what, what this disease was. But when I looked at the reaction on our children's faces, I knew that it was something bad. I just didn't know what was coming, though. Um, he did resign. Or, well, no, he he, uh, he uh, retired from the Postal Service in 1988 after uh, a little over 20 years with them. He had 20 years in private industry also. And uh, then it really started to get uh, worse, just more intense with, with the arguments and anything that we tried to do um, we would always have a conflict with that. And a lot of times, you know, I would just hold everything back to the point where I would explode at the end. And all I had to do was just look towards the desk where the checkbook was, and he would be all over me. What are you doing there? Why are you looking for that? Because he did everything. He did all the, you know, he took care of all the finances. He did all the driving. And all, and to me, in a way, I was spoiled with all this. But as things started to change, you know, we were getting uh, late fees because the mail that would come come to the house was his mail. It had his name on it, 
and my neighbor had said that he goes to the mailbox around 15 times a day. So I wasn't getting the important things that I needed to take care of. And uh, I eventually got a P.O. box um, so that the bills could go into. But it, um, it really got to the point where I didn't understand the disease and he didn't understand the disease. And uh, the one time that that it really uh, came to a to head was when um, I was vacuuming one time, and I um, I was so angry with something that he did that I just hit the wall with the vacuum cleaner, and I put a little hole in there. And I was just crying and totally out of control, and he was like, you work so hard. What? Why? Why are you crying? What are you doing? You know, and all. And each time, I would always, he would be the one to bring me back down and and comfort me and all. And uh, when I, when he said, "I don't understand. Why are you? Why are you crying? Why are you so upset? Why are you doing this?" And I looked at his face, and I realized right there that he could not help the way was, but I could, and, um, you know, so everything sort of changed right now. I guess the reality set in. I understood more, and from then on, it seems to have gotten a little easier because we stopped butting heads with each other, and it was just making sure he was clean, comfortable, and safe until the end. Um, You know, it's it's amazing when those points hit you, and you just never know on this journey where where it's going to be, where it just clicks and you accept it. And because right. you think you're accepting it and you're dealing with it, but there it seems like just about everybody has that moment in time where it was like, wow, I, I really I really get this now. Down to the core, I get this. And mm-hmm. um, that had to be just um, a difficult moment, but a beautiful moment at the same time, I would imagine. I think it was because it started to get a little easier in the point where I didn't argue with him anymore. Um, You know, I just went along with what he said, and things just seemed to be better. Even though, you know, the disease, they always say that, if you know, once the disease progresses, it gets a little easier. Well, I'm I'm not sure, but, um, you know, we... He had it for 13 years that we know of, and uh, he was home all but the last nine months when he suffered a seizure uh, at 4.30 in the morning on my 50th birthday. Oh, And uh, he went from from home to the hospital for a couple couple of weeks, transferred over to uh, a nursing home for a month. He he couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't speak or or walk or anything or feed himself. Uh, he finally got to the point where he could. Uh, he was uh, feeding himself. He was starting to walk again. And I thought, you know, we went out to we went to the courtyard. We were walking out there, and he was sort of showing off. And I said, wow, look at you. I said, you'll be able to come home. Well, we went out into the courtyard and sat down. And for some reason, you know, I didn't even think. He, he decided he was going to get up. And he got up and he fell, and everybody came running and and all. And of course, I couldn't lift him. I knew right there that that he'd never come home. 
and um, you know, so from there he went into a, a per, you know a permanent uh, um, residence at the nursing home, and uh, he was there for seven months before he passed. So, oh, what a journey! Thank you for sharing that with us, Linda. Would you mind giving us a little insight with uh, with your husband? Well, sure, sure, I will. Um, well. Richard and I were both employed by the University of California, Irvine, and that's where we met in 1980. We had both been married before, and we were divorced. And um, he was the director of Applied New Technologies, and I worked in human resources. And it was actually my supervisor who um, really was both my mentor and, I'll have to say, a matchmaker in this regard. Um, she um, had been assigned to his office and took me there um, with a meeting. And when we came back, she said something to me like, um, you know, if I were 30 years younger and, um, you know, looking for a man, Richard Everman is the man I would want to find. And I kind of looked at her and I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, some men are um, fool's gold, but he's the real thing. And um, she said, he's a diamond in the rough. Well, it turned out that we did go out on a date, which didn't take. But eight years later, in 1988, he asked me out again. And um, we did go out. And um, there were many, many wonderful things that I admired about Richard. Um, You know, and I think that is one of the things that I miss most because... You know, it's one thing to be in love with someone, but it's also um, to have someone in your life who has an impact on your life. And um, he was a very optimistic person. He was a self-made person. And um, so we were married in 1991, and Richard um, had a strong belief in um, the ability of the individual to affect change. Um, He had been in technology all of his life. He designed the student information systems for the University of California that were adopted um, not just at UC Irvine, but system-wide, and then eventually um, at many institutions across the country. Um, He took um, the University of California off of the mainframe and put all the systems on personal computers when people said that it could not be done. So... um, you know, that was a wonderful thing. And to him, the mind was everything because um, he often said it's what separates us from the rest of the animal kingdom. So it was a tremendous blow um, for him to have a diagnosis that would impact his cognition because that is what so defined him. And um, so anyway, we were very content in each other's company. We were pretty, um, both of us tended to be somewhat introverted, and I used to use the expression, we two form a multitude. So we were very content to spend time in each other's company. But what happens with caregivers and what happened to us is you actually become so isolated. And so um, we retired at the end of 1999, And really, until uh, 2009, we were together 24-7, so much so that at some point in 2009, when I said to my brother, 
you know Richard has Alzheimer's. I will never forget his response. He said, I mean, there was a pause, and he said, you've um, alluded to that, but you've never said anything. So here we were 12 years into the disease, and I had been silent about it. And uh, I really, I mean, to me that um, stays with me so much because there is an incredible isolation. You want to protect, protect your loved one's dignity, so you remain quiet. You compensate without even realizing it. You know, people talk about finishing sentences. Well, you do more and more and more. And um, so the other part of it for me was I, um, he was optimistic, and I was afraid to bring it up and turn that optimism into pessimism or despair or depression because you learn you hear about that with people with dementia. And very early on in our relationship, I remember Richard saying telling me about his early experiences at Scripps Institute at University of California, San Diego, and he had a very brilliant um mentor there who was over the computing lab. And Late in his mentor's career, the mentor developed um, problems with cognition and committed suicide. And I remember Richard telling me about that and saying, I understand. And that stuck with me so much that I never wanted to introduce anything that might start his mind in that direction. I mean, of course, I had no control over his mind, and he was optimistic. Let me say that this was just what was going on in my mind. So for those are kind of the complex reasons behind which I kept my silence, really. So about the time I told this to my brother in 2009, um, Richard's um, behaviors and judgments were changing. And see, that's another misconception about Alzheimer's is People think that it only affects your memory. It affects your whole person. It affects the way that you look at the world and think of the world and behave in the world. And um, so my brother, um, who lived in California and still does, and I'm in Tennessee, encouraged me to seek assisted living for my husband. And he said something along the lines of you... You have a choice. I mean, he knew nothing about Alzheimer's until I told him that, and then he went into high gear and quickly, quickly learned and actually, I'll say, did an intervention uh, with me on a trip to California in which he arranged for my husband to be with someone, took me out to breakfast with my son and I, and said, um, you know, Um, many caregivers will die before their loved ones, and you're well on the path to being one of those. And he said, you know, um, Alzheimer's can claim one or two lives. You have the choice if it's going to claim one or two lives. So, I mean, he really got my attention. And um, I promised that I would look into having some assistance because, as I said, we were together 24-7. 
And at first, when I had a personal caregiver come into the house, I didn't even know how to spend four hours by myself. So um, the most wrenching decision of my life was to move Richard to assisted living. And part of it had to do with my personal belief about my marriage vows, you know, in sickness and in health, for better or for worse. And um, I sought counsel from someone that I trusted and um, determined that I needed to do it. But in my case, and I know this happens to others, I couldn't even tell my husband about it. So you have a life of trust and communication and then you make all the arrangements behind his back. And, um, you know, I will never forget that day. So, um, yes. I just, I can hear the pain in your voice, and I I so appreciate you sharing your story, because so many people go through this, and it's very, it's very difficult, and you Everything you do is out of love, and, you know, you worry about what's it going to look like to others and what's it going to look like to them, but it's it's all out of love, and and I'm sure, you know, I'm a firm believer that, that they know that because they can take so much in. They, they know our struggles. They can see them, and I think they can feel them even if they can't communicate to us, and... Um, so I appreciate you sharing that with our listeners because I don't think people understand um, how devastating that can be when when you are that close and then to have yeah. to do everything in reverse compared to what you would normally do it. Um, it's it's well, not it's not an easy process. And um, again, I just I thank you for your for your honesty and <clears throat> in sharing that because that's. That's a big step, and that's a huge learning curve that you're helping others with in terms of understanding um, just part of the process, you know, all these little bits and pieces with that. What has happened to me personally was, um, well, from the very beginning we sought intervention. Obviously we were, you know, at a research institution, (laughs) at an Alzheimer's disease research center, and from the very beginning... Um, even with the um, diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment, Richard was on a drug called Riminal, which at that time was expected not just to arrest the process but to improve cognition. And, um, I mean, to, con- uh, to jump ahead, at, after his death I had his brain autopsied. I mean, we so believe in research, and he participated in... Um, research studies of um, Dimabond and others. But at any rate, my brother, if I had not had my... So my brother took my son and I out that day and said these things in front of my son. And, of course, I had always been very protective of everyone, including my son. And basically that was the day he was, you know, launched from into manhood because my brother said to him, your mother's going to go through a very difficult time and she's going to need our support. And my brother's motto was and is, go forward with courage. 
and so um, I started to say, so we had been at that point at UT Medical Center at the Cole Neuroscience Center, and the gentleman there who was a social worker um, in all of our meetings had with with the neurologist had come in, and I guess I was oblivious to his being there. I mean, I knew he was there, but I never quite understood why or gave it much thought until... I found myself in a crisis mode. We were in the Dymabond study, and I just broke down one day. I w- and I was next door to um, the social worker, uh, Mr. Baxter's office, and the nurse ushered me into his office, you know. And um, I talked to him and told him what was going on, and I left that meeting with his personal phone number. And so from 2002 until that day in 2009, every time Richard and I had been in an appointment, Mr. Baxter had been in that appointment. And so he saw our interaction and he knew us both very well. Well, he was an incredible support system for me because um, I felt that because he knew us both, he his advice or counsel would be to benefit both of us, you know, versus sometimes your family, while they love Richard, you know, they would give advice for me. I mean, I'm not saying they would, but that's my perception. And Mm -hmm. so to have an outsider who saw us both and knew us both, and I said to him, I'd asked him for feedback, you know, here's what I'm thinking about. Do you think that is right for Richard? Do you think that is right for me? And that gave me a great deal of confidence and um, support to have his honest feedback. I mean, I talked to him from, you know, seeking out different places uh, to move Richard. I had to move Richard several times. Once we were in assisted living, um, I had to take him to intervention, um, psychiatric intervention, at the end of life, which we can talk about later in the show, um, he became he was given medication to control what I consider to be common behaviors, and he became over-medicated and dehydrated. And I had to take him to the emergency room. Well, Mr. Baxter meted me, met me at the emergency room of the hospital. And in the, that month, in one month, Richard was moved five times. And... Any individual, you or I, a healthy individual, to be moved five times with nothing that is familiar to us and no one that is familiar to us and only allowing to have an hour's visit from anyone that you know, that would that would do any of us in. Four months to the date of Richard's admission to the emergency room, he died. You know, so, um, so I got ahead of myself, but... Um, at any rate, in 2009, we I moved Richard to assisted living. And one of the things that Kathy said is, um, you know, about the arguing. Because we want everything to be right. You know, we think that if our loved one says, um, oh, do you remember when I climbed that mountain and he had never climbed that mountain? If you tell him that he never climbed that mountain, he'll get it. But at some point, it hits you that you cannot argue. You can just be there with them. And 
the day that it hit me was um, we were we live right outside the Smoky Mountains, and Richard was looking at a distant mountain range, and he said, "Did I tell you when I hiked that mountain range?" And I said, "Well, honey, I've been with you every day. You've never hiked that mountain range." And he turned around and he looked at me and he said, why do you always have to be right? Mm. And I thought to myself, well, I don't. I don't have to be right. Yep. It's not It's not about that. And it's, it's such a, a poignant moment when that happens because, I, I like, like Kathy said, too, it, it's one of those times you, you will just never forget it. You know, you just it just clicks, and and um, you know, I think it makes us all all better in the long run um, in terms of being a care partner, and it it hits us all at different times. But we all do the best we can in the moment that we have, and then we move forward. I love your I love your brother's phrase: "Go forward with courage." Yeah, and the other thing that Mr. Baxter said to me was, um, I remember in one of our conversations, he said, um, Linda, at some point you'll look at this and find joy. And I looked at him and I said, I will never find joy in this. And he said, well, if you can't find joy, find resilience. And so, I, of course, I had to go to the dictionary and see what that meant. Mm-hmm. And um, so that became my motto, that, you know, I would be resilient, that I would overcome, I would face the fears, I would overcome it, I would go forward with courage. And along the way, I came across a quote from Albert Camus that said, in the midst of winter, I found there was within me an invincible summer. And so somehow I found my courage and I found my ability to go forward. And while it was extremely painful for me, as it is for all care partners, I found that when the times when I was with Richard, I was able to be calm and cheerful and matter-of-fact and... You know, and that amazed me because when I left, I didn't feel that way at all. And um, one of the things was he always promised me that he would never forget me. You know, he his, he said to me all the time of our married life, he said, you are the best thing that ever happened to me, and eternity with you would not be long enough. And he mm-hmm. said, whatever happens to me, I will never forget you. And I never argued, you know, I never said, oh, there will come a day. But in my heart, I tried to prepare myself for that. But, you know, Lori, he never did forget me. The last thing he ever said before he died was, I love you. Oh, well, and and I think that's a good point, too, because I think a lot of times we judge if somebody forgets us if they don't know our name. And we are so much more than a name. And yeah. you know that connection—it it, just—it can't be destroyed. You know, I, I don't care what disease it is. There's, there's still this innate connection between us um, that can't die off if we're open to letting it live. Um, and I think sometimes people shut it down, thinking that it's died on the other person's behalf. And I, I'm a firm believer it—it it never dies. Um, 
because I've just seen too many times over the 30-year period with my mom and, and with others where all of a sudden they do something people thought they couldn't do. You know, if it's saying a word or making a comment or a, a movement um, or reacting to what's going on around them um, appropriately, and it just blows people out of the water. So I think it's important to to hold on to knowing that your relationship is much more than a name, and it's so neat that he, you know, was able to tell you up until the end that he that he loves you. That is that's just a beautiful, beautiful story. So. I thank you um, so much for sharing that with us. Um, <clears throat> I want to talk to Kathy a little bit here, if we can change gears, if you don't mind. And just, um, Kathy, can you tell us a little bit when you started working on the commemorative stamp, and you know what's the process like? I know you've been working on it for for quite a while, and so if you can let us know a little bit about why you started it and and how the process is going, and what we can do as an audience to help. That would be wonderful. All right. Thank you, Lori. Um, you know, like Linda was saying, the love is always there, even up to the end. And um, my husband, when he was, he couldn't speak anymore. And uh, when I went into the nursing home um, for one day, he, um, we were sitting off in a corner, and he just said, Kathy and looked away, and I said, well, I'm right here, Jean. And then he turned and looked at me, and, of course, he, he didn't know me. But the people there at the uh, home always said, he knows he knows when you come in because he acts much differently when, when he sees you. And I said, I know. I know that uh, he never forgot me. Uh, even though he didn't know my name, I knew that he he still knew me and all. And at the hospital is when you get that that little gift that uh, God gives you at the end when we were uh, having, when we started going into the final uh, days. And uh, he knew me for a little while there, and he took my hand. And then from then he sort of went into a, a, a sort of a, a mild coma, I guess is what you call it. Um, it was in the hospital when, when we were, you know, I was talking to my daughter and, and um, myself, and I said, you know, I want to do something that will, you know, could bring awareness or raise money or something that I can do, something big, you know, I was thinking. And um, I said, what about a ride across the country? And my my son-in-law, who does ride bikes, he was like, he started planning all this stuff, and my daughter's kind of looking at us like we're crazy. And um, I went home, and I had gone up to the gym, and I got on the bicycle for five minutes, and I thought, I, I, I think I'm going to have to rethink this one. <laughs> you know? So that was a little tough. But um, it was after he died in uh, on January 24, 1999, and I had been doing um, a lot of public policy and with my memory walk and, and all. Um, at the um, After he, he passed, we went to a uh, uh, advocate's uh, workshop in in Hagerstown, and um, we we were listening or we were throwing around ideas as to you know how we could raise money or awareness or whatever. And someone mentioned the breast cancer stamp, and I said, no, that doesn't sound right. I said, I work for the postal service. I've never heard of that before. And they said, no, uh, you know they there is a stamp there that's raising money. And I said, well, I said, then I'll check into this, and I'll, I want one. 
you know, I want one for us. So let <laughs> let me start checking into it and all, which I which I did. I started calling. I called um, the gentleman who had taken uh, my husband's spot, and uh, I talked to him, and he he said, well, you know. Uh, I'll refer you to so-and-so at these stamp services and all. So this is how it started and all. And uh, basically they said, well, you know, we it would be um, just a request to the Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee. You know, you write to them and say you want the stamp. And, uh, you know, so that's the process. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that's easy enough. It's well, easy, yeah. Yeah, that's easy. So... <laughs> So I wrote to them, and I wrote a couple of letters and all, and they were like, "Well, thank you, but you know, we're we we've uh, you know the the way you do it, we get we get fifty thousand letters a year, and and only maybe and I'm not sure of this figure, but let's say only twenty five or under uh, get um, uh, get chosen each year." And uh, I said, "Okay, um, so." Uh, they they finally told me in one of my other letters that um, you know there just um, there just wasn't enough interest for Alzheimer's to have a stamp and I thought okay well that means that I need to get more people involved then so I started collecting uh, signatures on a petition and um, on on the petition at first it was a simple petition and I had commemorative and or uh, fundraising stamp for Alzheimer's, and I I started, uh, you know, just going up to the carnival grounds or the air show, car show, anything, anywhere I could to to start collecting signatures, and um, they, I attended a um, a world conference in 2000, and I talked to the uh, people at the paper that I was going to go to this conference and all, and would they be interested in doing a story or something. And they said, uh, no, that's not something we want to talk about. They said, but what about this thing about your stamp? And I said, well, I said, you know, that I, I did want the stamp. And they said, now that's more, that's something we can do a story on. And I said, okay. I said, when do you want to do it? They said, now. And I said, <laughs> oh, okay. All right. So they they did the first um, uh, article on the stamp, on me and, and the uh, stamp. And that was back in uh, 2000, I guess it was. And um, from that, Mark and Ellen Warner, who have Ageless Design, uh, gave me a call. And they were, like, all excited. They said, we've, we've put your petition on our website. They donated the website, and we want to help. Well, my gosh, by the time I stopped talking to them and I hung up, it, you know, I had this little fear in me that said, my gosh, you know, this could actually happen. So, um, you know, we started collecting signatures and all. In the meantime, I was following the legislation. Um, there was uh, another piece of legislation that had been introduced in, in uh, 99, I believe it was, and uh, for an Alzheimer's stamp. One of the ladies that, that was in, in the uh, group in Hagerstown, uh, she said, oh, uh, let me check. I thought I saw something on that. And uh, I said, okay. So she gave me a copy of of a um, of a of a uh, bill that was that had been introduced, and when I called um, Congress to ask about this bill, they said, "Well, that bill is not going to go through." And they said, uh, "We we get a lot of bills that come in for different causes. So what we're doing is we are uh, going to pass the Alzheimer's um, 
the Alzheimer's um, reauth- no, the Semi-Postal Reauthorization Act. And uh, what that will do is it, it will uh, give the Postal Service authority to to issue more of these uh, stamps, the semi-postals. And I said, okay. So it was signed into law by the President Clinton in, in uh, July of uh, 2000, and, uh, 2000. So from there, the Postal Service had to start writing guidelines on this program. And uh, so they went through that process, and then it had to be uh, posted in the Federal Register for comments. Um, if you, you know, I went to the I went to the headquarters and I looked at all the comments that had come in on that, and um, uh, you know I was the only one for Alzheimer's. So um, from there, after they they uh, reviewed all the comments and, and finished their guidelines and all, then they were um, they said, all right, we're going to uh, issue a request for proposal, and uh, with the deadline of August 31st, 2001, and they were going to look five more stamps, each to run two years each. And uh, so they were they were going to look for, for these five new stamps. Well, I had continued to, to work um, getting signatures and all, and uh, with Ellen's help and all, I, I submitted my proposal on August 30th. But um, I had to get um, other information to go with the proposal. I needed the I needed a letter of the funding federal agency that funded Alzheimer's research. So trying to find that, Senator Mikulski had given me uh, a person's name at NIH, which I called and then started from there. And then towards the end, you know, I kept looking for this letter, and they they said, Oh no, what? Tell you know, tell me this again, what you're looking for, and I explained it all again. And they said, Oh no, that's Department of Health and Human Services. And they said, we well, we transferred your letter over there. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, the time is... I said, if I don't get this letter, my proposal's not going to be any good. So um, I did uh, make the deadline, and I got the letter from uh, DHS, DDS. I got the letter, like, the day before my proposal was going in, because all the time they were saying, well, what what organization are you working with? Who which organization is looking for this? And I said, It's me. <laughs> I'm you know, this is something I'm doing. And I said, I need that letter. So I got it the day before the proposal went in. And um with that proposal, Senator Mikulski had sent in a letter under separate uh, cover and also um Congressman Markey's office with uh, 16 members of the Congressional Task Force had also sent in a letter supporting uh, my proposal. And the first, um, well, I had already submitted 140-something signatures to the Postal Service with one letter. So there was, uh, I was just short of 12,000 signatures with the help of, of the um, the website and um, and all. And then me going everywhere, every weekend, uh, you know, uh, memory walks, car shows, every place that I could get into. So we those were the first signatures that went in with the proposal. And with that there was also a letter from um uh the Alzheimer's Association supporting that. There was a letter from the from NARF, that's National uh Retired Federal Employees. Now it's known as the National Active and Retired Federal Employees. 
and they submitted a letter. So we, we were looking really good. Uh, I got the two letters from Congress on uh, September the 7th when I was there, and, and uh, they presented me with the letters from uh, uh, Senator Mikulski and Congressman Markey's office. And then September 11th happened. So uh, what that did is they uh, temporarily suspended the program, and Congress issued, uh, passed the legislation for the 9-11 hero stamp and the domestic violence stamp, and then they reauthorized the uh, uh, breast cancer stamp. So I can remember sitting at my desk saying, shame on you, I was so upset, you know, because it just killed our, our whole our whole project there, you know, it was just set aside and all. So I was upset with that. But anyhow, it was like, okay, this will give me more time to, to collect more signatures. And um, then I, I had run into one gentleman who, um, at, in Annapolis, at one of our advocacy days, and then I, when they did another article uh, in the Washington Post, he contacted me. His name is John Daly. And um, I had met John and his wife, Lou, in 1998 uh, when we made our first visits in and with Senator Mikulski. And um, so we we was, were back again together here in uh, 2001, I believe it was, or just before that, and before the proposal went in. So his daughter, Mara, uh, redid the uh, petition form for us, made it much more professional. And then it was uh, uh, printed and donated um, by a gentleman that they knew, um, and I forget his name here, but um, anyhow, so he donated uh, several thousand copies of that, which was wonderful. And uh, John had the same passion I had. He was ready to to get this done, and he would sit, he would stand in lines and just pass him out, talk to everybody. He was quite a gentleman. Uh, he has since passed, and um, you know, so I just it was good to have him behind me. It, it really was. And, and every I'd say, well, I I've got to get permission to be here, and he said, he'd always say, it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission. I said, yes. I said, but I've been told if I'm not good, they're going to kick me out. <laughs> so I said, so I, I said, you go ahead and do what, what you can, and I'll do mine. So everybody I talked to or, or anything, you know, I would say, please just use whatever resources you have. You know, call the postal service, do that. Uh, you know, let's let's get it done. But little did I know that 13 years later, I would still be working on this, and um, it's just been a. a a tough row. I never thought there was any politics in a stand, but I've run into so much now. And um, because of all the interest that we showed in this, and plus all the letters that were, you know, the uh, the task force, the bicameral task force were sent, you know, they sent in a letter for me in, in, uh, in August of 2005, with 29 members who had signed on in, in uh, 2006, with 31 members who had signed on because we were asking them, you know, we want this stamp. And, uh, you know, so finally I, I said, we, I think we need to tell them. We can't ask them anymore. I think we need legislation to tell them to do it. 
and uh, so that's when when they decided uh, Congressman Markey uh, introduced the first piece of legislation in the 109th session, and it was in accordance to the 84,778 signatures that we had collected on this petition. So that's when the legislation began. But, you know, still four times in the House and three times in the Senate, we're still not there. That's why it's so important that we get more people to try to call in on this. Uh, it's been a, a long, slow process, but it's like, you know, every time I'd feel like, oh, gosh, you know, why am I doing this? Because if you look, you know, I look back, and it's 13 years caring for my husband, and now 13 years working on the stamps, 26 years, you know, with this. And and it's, um, you know, I tell people I was, I was younger, uh, thinner, and much better looking when I started this. You know, process, and uh, you know, it's 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 got to be done. We want it to get done. So that's sort of the the background on the stamp and all. So, wow, a lot, a lot of background, and it's uh, it's amazing because you think it just wouldn't be that tough. I mean, we see them out there, and you just think, what well, makes sense? Why wouldn't we? Now, do you think with the, the Postal Service being in such bad financial, you know, situations that that has an impact on if a stamp would get through or not? Well, that's what I'm hearing, uh, you know, because they are in, in dire straits that they are not even sure that they think that the Postal Service is going to be insolvent by next year. And, um, you know, so that they're trying to, they said that these stamps, the semi-postals are, are um, costing uh, more than what they're generated, except for the breast cancer stamp. But that one, because it's been out since 1998 and it keeps being reauthorized, uh, that's the reason why this stamp has been so successful and all. And uh, knowing that possibly the newer ones, if we if we ever get it, will only run for two years. Um, because of all the the um, uh, the interest, the national interest that we did. Uh, raise for the Alzheimer's stamp. In 2008, Postal Service did issue the uh, commemorative stamp, the Alzheimer's awareness stamp. Uh, they printed 65 million of these stamps, and 39 million were sold. Uh, of course, you know things always seem to happen in Alzheimer's when you know it was it was um, issued in October of 2008 and it would run one year. Well, in March of 2009, we had a rate hike. So what happened was once the postal ser- the post offices were running out of their um, their supply, they weren't reordering. So I think that really hurt us there. Oh, and so uh, I asked, yeah, when I asked, can we get it reauthorized again, they said, nope. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, okay. So, um, you know, pro- probably if we go through the same process again or ask again, you know, maybe they'll consider it again for an awareness stamp. But I said, I, I, you know, I'll take what we can get, but I want the fundraising stamp also. Can you tell us how the fundraising stamp works, like what kind of percentage um, goes to where? Or is that something that's determined later on down the road? But I'm thinking there must be kind of a quotient or something that goes with it. Well, um, 
you know, you're you're paying a premium for the for the semi postal, so it's voluntary purchase because it it does cost more than than the stamp. I believe the breast cancer is selling for about fifty five cents now, and I'm not quite sure. Eleven cents goes to the uh, to the cause, um, and um, they um, the uh, I had something here, um, but it's also at a cost. Like in in 2008, I believe it was. Let's see if I can find my letter here. Um, in a in a um, a hearing, and because of the letter that I had sent in to the uh, members of the committee, um, there was uh, a letter uh, sent, or for the um, postmaster general Potter at that time uh, went in for a hearing and. Uh, Congressman uh, Cummings, Elijah Cummings, who is on, who is the um, um, senior member of the of the group, Democratic member, he asked him, uh, you know, how much of these uh, stamps, what have what have they raised, what have they generated, and all, and and you know, they'd like to get their answer on this, you know, how successful these stamps were, and um, you know, so. Still looking. Um, anyhow, the the breast cancer stamp had had raised at the time, and that was back in 2000, 2008. And um, the breast cancer stamp raised 62 million at that time. And oh. the postal services. Let me see. Wait a minute. Okay. Um, Breast cancer staff, as of July 29, 1998, had raised 62 million for research, and of that, 1.2 million dollars uh, was uh, the uh, postal cost for that stamp. Also, the Hero stamp, which ran for two years uh, and uh, ended in 2004, raised 10 million, 10.5 million dollars at the cost of five. Five hundred twenty-four thousand for the for the postal uh, postal cost on that. The domestic violence was the last one, and I believe that's when they uh, they were thinking, okay, these stamps aren't uh, aren't profitable because they raised three point two million, and two hundred twenty-four thousand went to the postal costs. So there there is a cost associated with these stamps, and if they feel that that they're not it's not going to be successful, then I guess they don't want to do it because uh, they hadn't done another one until just recently with a multinational species conservation fund, uh, semi-postal, that just came out in 2011. And um, so I, I just keep saying, well, you just haven't picked the right stamp yet. That's why you're not being successful. But um, I, they don't. They're not sure on that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, it's too, it's too bad, and it's just, uh, you know, with where the post right. office is at right now, it's kind of spooky. Right. It's like, are we even going to have one, or what's going to happen, you know? Right. Um, well, that's with, true. With everything. And, and the uh, the breast cancer stamp to date has raised about $74 million. $74 million is the uh, the figure that I was quoted from the Postal Service yeah. and all of it. You know, so so still, it is a successful stamp. They are going to keep the stamp. No one, no one is going to vote against it, uh, not keeping it. 
so it will always be there, I, I'm afraid. And we were told in the past, as long as that stamp was was uh, out, that no other semi postal would be um, would be uh, issued. So this is this is through all these years that I've been, you know, they kept telling me this. No, no one, you know, there's not gonna be another one. No, no, no. And I just kept saying yes, yes, yes. So this is, you know, this is where we are now. Um, but yes, the postal service is in trouble. And and I realize that, and um, but at the same time, it seems like everybody has gone to email, and you're not using the mail the way you used to, which is really sad because, uh, you know, just like Nancy Reagan with her her love letters from Ronnie, that's all she had left from mm-hmm. him, you know, were those memories, and email, you just hit a delete sign, and I mean delete, and it's gone. You know, you don't have anything right there with you. So it, it's just too bad that, that we're not using the mail. You know, use the mail to write to your loved ones and all. Those are special. Mm-hmm. A lot of seniors or the elderly, that's what they look forward to are the letters that they get. You know, not bills, but letters, special letters from grandchildren and, and their sons and daughters and even the military, you know, um, who knows if that's going to be the last one they're sending? You never know. Yeah. And, uh, you know, God forbid, you don't want that to happen. But, you know, you have letters. They're memories that, that you can hold on to. So um, I'd like to see more people write more letters and use a stamp and use the and send the letters with their Alzheimer's stamp. I still have some here, and I use them for my memory walk thank yous or, or anything that's very personal to me, I'll, I'll use I'll use that stamp. But it's no longer available. Okay. Yeah, it's it's just it's too bad that it didn't, uh, you know, timing just wasn't good, like you said, um, with the whole 9-11 and, and everything that, that happened there because the need is definitely there. And I, I think there's just becoming more of an awakening now that, you know, this is just as common um, as breast cancer um, and a lot of the other things that diseases and chronic illnesses that are out there, it's starting to finally be diagnosed earlier. People are getting much more educated on it. And and I think part of it is um, having the the hope um, Push down the fear that you know change can change is possible, and um, and that's a, that's a big hurdle to get because when people are fearful, a lot of people just like to hide from it and don't want to talk about it. But it's yeah. hard to get away from the conversation these days. Um, anyways, in my circles, but maybe that's because I'm talking about it all the time. <laughs> but, but I, I always tell people, I think I have Alzheimer's because I keep repeating my story over and over again because someday someone who can do something about it is going to be listening, and that's what we need to do. We just need to keep sharing our story all the time, whenever possible. That's a a very good point, you know, that uh, there's always somebody new or they're coming. It, It could be, I mean, and we've all done this, where, we're talking with somebody, and, and uh, you know they've heard what you've said before, but it just hits them different. You know, it's, it's kind of like those moments with our loved ones where we get it, you know, and it just there's that shift in us, and we've known it all along, but it 
it's it's that point when we come to change where we no longer just see it, but we feel the need for the change. And and we never know when that moment's going to be because we all, you know, we're all different. We all have different histories and attitudes and um, perceptions. And, um, yeah, it's one of those things I agree. We we can't give up hope, and it is about uh, collaborative effort and joining together. And when the right people join, you know, big things can happen. Um, Yes. And that will never happen if we stay quiet. Right, and one other thing with my son, in 1997, when they first did the first article on on my husband and I, they had asked, would you be willing to share your story? And I thought, well, let me ask all the kids, because I wanted to make sure that everyone was okay with that. And surprisingly, my youngest son, who is still here at home, um, said, why do you want to open your life or our life up to everybody else? You know, do you think that you, one person's going to make a difference? And I said, well, I don't know. I said, that's why I need to do this, because if we just, if we don't say anything about it, no one will ever know what this disease is like at all. So everyone agreed, and, and that first article was done in 1997. Well, that's wonderful. And, you know, and everything starts with one person. You know, an, yeah, an idea, a business, a book, uh, you know, whatever, it all starts with one person's thought and being brave enough to share it. And yeah, uh, you I, know, if we all listen to our inner critic and thought we weren't worthy of making change, well, you know, we wouldn't be a very pro- progressive com- uh, country um, or world in general. And so it, it is important to, you know, share your voice, share your ideas, because we... We all see things from different angles. We all feel things. Um, we all have different experiences. But again, the more you talk about it, the more like-minded. I can't talk. My tongue is getting tied this morning. The more like-minded people um, gather around you, and that's when the force um, becomes really evident. And and I don't know for you, ladies. Um, and Linda, I'll throw this to you. Is there? Uh, was there a point where you cannot be involved? Like for me, I cannot not do what I'm doing. I, I, I can't oh. stop. I mean, it's like I, I'm in this place I think where it's in our DNA. <laughs> yeah, it's it's it's. Uh, I cannot not do this. I mean, I've tried. No. I've gotten really frustrated and said, "Oh, heck with it. That's it. I give up. I throw on the towel." And then you know, ten minutes later, I'm like picking up the towel right. again and going. You know. Um, um, I think what happens is, at least for me, to become an advocate and to speak, it's our way of making sense out of what was really a very senseless situation. And that's how I characterize it. And I think that it is a part of our DNA. And, you know, like Kathy, I feel like I got the call. I mean, years later than Kathy, but... I can just clearly remember this. I was driving down the road, and I was thinking about, um, actually, I was thinking about how, um, what Nancy Brinker had done for breast cancer and all that she had done because of, as a result of one woman's promise to her dying sister. And I thought, oh, naively, we need a, we need an Alzheimer's now, you know, that's a no, no brainer. And, so like Kathy, I thought that would be very simple, and 
I, of course, started out writing to the um, Citizen Stamp Advisory Committee like she did and got the same letter back and um, about that time saw, um, oh, something coming out from the Friends of Napa. And I thought, okay, well, these are the people who are going to make a change in um, the trajectory of the disease. I'll write to them. So I wrote to every single one of them, and I um, actually I stamped my letter with the breast cancer stamp, and I encouraged them all to write to their representatives and to use the breast cancer stamp in so doing, you know, and... Um, I got back a couple of letters. One I got back was from um, Dan Perry for the, from the Alliance for Aging and um, Sue Passion from Alzheimer's Foundation of America and also uh, George Bradenberg from Us Against Alzheimer's. And so, of course, I told them of what I was about and they told me what they were about. And um, so, you know, one of the things that Kathy and I, of course, want to mention is we have a very strong belief that we must use every means available to defeat this disease. And so we do support the larger legislation. We support NAPA. We support HOPE and SPRINT and all of the bills and acronyms that those of us in the Alzheimer's community are familiar with. But, um, you know, such as um, SPRINT, which would... Um, accelerate public and private research funding and streamline the regulatory review of treatment for Alzheimer's and other life-threatening diseases, and hope that would improve diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and increase access to information and um, support for newly diagnosed individuals and their families, but also the stamp. And um, to us, of course, it's highly symbolic, and also very important and continues to um, create an awareness that people may not have for the disease. I mean, once I got my voice and started to speak, I can't tell you how many times people would come up and say to me, how is your husband? I hope he'll get better. And, you know, I, I, I was speechless because in a lot of situations, I couldn't just say, it's fatal, he won't get better, mm-hmm. you know, but people don't know. And um, so I just go back to our mantra, we need to use every means available to defeat Alzheimer's. You know, the greatest legacy that we could leave is to leave a world without Alzheimer's. And there are many, many chronic conditions that I support and walk for and raise funds for. But, of course, this is dear to my heart. And like you and like Kathy, I don't think there's a way we cannot be advocates. Yep. I agree. How about you, Kathy? Do you feel there's, you know, that you can stop doing what you're doing, or is it just part of you now? Well, it's... I think it's a big part of me now. I mean, sometimes my husband, I did remarry. I was fortunate enough that God placed another gift in my life and uh, we'll be married uh, six years here in August. But, uh, and sometimes he sees me here at the computer all the time and he says, why don't you, you know, you spent all this time, maybe it's time to let someone else take over. And uh, I'm thinking, and I said, no, there isn't anyone else 
that could do what I'm doing with the passion until I met Linda. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm thinking, okay, you know, here she is. She's perfect. She can do the Internet. That's one of the things I cannot do and all, and she's hitting the airways that way, which is great. But um, when I would feel down about certain things, I would get a call or something from someone I didn't know, and they would talk to me and and, uh, tell me how much they appreciated what I was doing and all, and it would just build me right back up, enough to go for another two years or so. And that part is very, very important. Um, My, it's, it's more to me, just like with Linda, it's just more to to us uh, to get this done. And uh, it's, it's not that we're trying to do anything for ourselves. It's something that we want to do because we believe in the cause and we want to we want something that will help and and all. It's we we just need to do this. So I, I just know that I you know, I will continue to do it as long as I can. And uh, like I said, Mr. Daly lost his life a couple of years ago, um, you know, after his wife had passed. And he was such such an amazing man and all. And uh, I miss him. And he, too, had the passion that I had. So when you find people that are like that, you need to keep hold of them because together you can make a difference. You know, it takes one, but then you can pick up one or two more, and, and that's the way we keep going. So um, I guess I'm in it. I'm in it till the end, I guess, uh, one way or another. And uh, I hope it'll be the stamp, though. So, um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, I'm in it. I'll, I'll be here. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, how can our audience help? What can they What can they do to uh, to help you with this process? Well, right now um, we're only at thirty uh, thirty co-sponsors for the uh, the house bill. And we were trying to get at least 150, so you see how see how we're going here. Um, we need to get this passed. We want people to call their, their elected, elected officials, ask them, we, we want you to sign on to this bill, and it's H Resolution 351 in the House and S Resolution 176 in the Senate, and they're expressing the sense of the House and the, and the Senate that um, that a semi-postal stamp, that the U.S. Postal Service should issue a semi-postal stamp to support medical research relating to Alzheimer's disease. If we don't get uh, enough co-sponsors, then then it will die in committee once more, and then I will have to start again uh, in, in the next session and try to get the legislation reintroduced again. Each each time, it seems to be getting a little bit harder, but um, that's that's our main goal is to get people to sign in. They are going on recess here uh, in August. Um, go and see them in their district offices. Uh, you know, make appointments. Go and see them. Tell them how important, uh, you know, Alzheimer's is. We need to get, uh, you know, we need to get a hold of this. We need to make it a priority, a national priority and all. And the stamp is just an alternative way of raising additional money for research just by buying the stamp, but we have to establish the stamp first. And uh, Linda has been wonderful with the uh, computer, and uh, she can give you more information on on the website. She created the Stamp Out Alzheimer's Facebook page, 
and um, you know, so people can go to that. And I, so I'll I'll let Linda talk about that now. Oh, okay. Well, um, I did create a Facebook page, and it's called Help Stamp Out Alzheimer's. And if you go to the page, it gives all the information that you need about the stamp. Um, Basically, you know, it tells people that there are 5.4 million Americans with Alzheimer's and other dementias. And I ask people that on behalf of these people and their care partners and, as importantly, those yet to be diagnosed, would they please contact their elected representatives and ask them to co-sponsor these resolutions. And um, as Kathy says, of course it would raise awareness. It would allow ordinary citizens to show their support for individuals and families impacted by this devastating disease, and it would help raise much-needed research funds for medical research through the voluntary purchase of postage stamps. So it's like, if you think about what the breast cancer stamp has raised, when you are paying 11 cents more per stamp, one stamp at a time, and Kathy said that um, the latest figure was $74 million. Well, of course, Kathy and I have um, walked. I've knit caps and sold them to raise funds for Alzheimer's. We've sewed tamales. We've done many things. But what hit me that day that I was thinking about the stamp was instead of raising 10 or $15 at a time, what if we could raise millions of dollars? And what if this money went back to the research institutions and to the people who are at the bench working? Because what they tell us is that um, from the time that a therapy gets from the laboratory to a patient, it takes, what is it, a billion dollars in 15 years? We need to accelerate that process, and we need to give our researchers the tools to make it happen in our lifetime. So we're asking people to call the U.S. Capital Switchboard at 202-224-3121, ask to speak to their congressmen and senators, If they um, don't know who their congressmen and senators are, there's a great website called Contacting the Congress, and I also have that link on my Facebook page. Um, So the purpose of the Facebook page was not to get likes, you know, in the Facebook community, but it was to get people to contact their representatives and to share the information and to keep it going. you know, when you talk about together we can make a difference, um, to me I think of that as the man in the mirror syndrome, what one person can do. And and I go back to Nancy Brinker, what has what one woman has done for the cause of breast cancer. Certainly together we can do as much for Alzheimer's, which is the sixth leading cause of death in the United States and the only one with no known um, means to prevent, cure, or even halt its progress. So I think I can speak for Kathy and myself to say that, you know, a great part of our motivation is to spare others the journey that we found ourselves on. Well, that's very admirable because it is, it's a, it's a painful and kind of bizarre process, um, though I, I am a true believer that there are some gifts. Um, 
and some lessons to be learned that can be life-changing and, and enhance um, one's life, too, through this process. But um, it's a journey. <laughs> it's definitely yeah, a journey. Yeah, I call it the reluctant journey, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not one any of us would have chosen, but somehow here we are. And, um, you know, part of what... Um, of course, continues to motivate Kathy and I as in memory of our husbands whom we loved and whose lives we feel were taken too soon and and before their deaths taken from us. You know, um, they were both um, contributors. And um, really, and I even said this when Richard was alive, I knew that I could not do anything to slow it with him, but perhaps I could spare someone in the future. So that is what motivates us, and that's why we continue to work and pray for a cure. And there's an old African proverb that I like, and it is, um, when you pray, move your feet. So Kathy and I are moving our mouth and our feet and our hands and (laughs) anything we can move to um, let people know about Alzheimer's and this avenue to raise funds for research. Well, I and I Lori, thank you. Mm-hmm. And Lori, I I always felt that you know God took us through this uh, journey for a reason, and He didn't want it to die with my husband or with or with Linda's husband. There there's a reason, I guess, that that uh, that He took us through this, and and um, that's that's how I feel. I just need to I need to follow His lead, I guess. Yeah, I. I'm a firm believer this disease is here to teach us major lessons about collaboration and living a more respectful life, um, you know, within our communities and being more accepting and less judgmental. And I mean, my list goes on and on of what I've learned through this disease. And it it forces people to to stop and come together um, and and ask for help, even those of us that don't like to ask for help, there becomes a point where you have to lean on somebody. And we, as a society, um, we like to give care, but we don't necessarily like to get care. <laughs> right, <laughs> and so right. It, it really forces us to look at the big picture, that this is a natural state of being, and we shouldn't be ashamed of it, there should be no stigma attached to it, and that none of us are perfect, and, you know, we all are groveling with with something in our life, and it's important for us to be respectful of that, and and help the next guy, you know, with what it is we've learned, instead of being so focused on our little life's mission, um, and our own little goals, and our materialism, because it the disease kind of blows the whole, anyways, it has for me and many others that I know, has blown the whole material aspect out of the water because those oh, things yeah. don't comfort you anymore and you realize um, how precious life is, um, how important your relationships are um, on, on, a, on a deeper level than, than is even imaginable. Um, and, and I've always been one where I thought I was very respectful of others and that I was in tune with people's needs and relationships. Um, but this has just taken it up several notches in terms of what is before me now. And um, instead of worrying about what could be, 
um, trying to improve, appreciate what's here and improve, uh, you know, make improvements for tomorrow. Uh, and that, that's been a big, big gift to me as well with the disease. And, and I don't worry. I probably should. Um, and I used to a lot. But I just don't focus on that because so much of what we worry about doesn't happen. And I, I, I get more benefit out of being proactive. And right. I don't know if that's um, something that that you, Kathy, have you have you kind of had that revelation as well? Um, yes, I think I have. There, there really isn't anything you can do about it. And you, you know, you're caring for your husband through that time, caring for Jean. I, I didn't have time to worry about anything else. Um, it, it was just living at that moment and all with his care. What happened happened. Uh, you know, they, we had some some scary times there, especially when when uh, he I lost him for 90 minutes, and we had the uh, canine unit and the helicopter uh, searching for him, and uh, but uh, found him safely in the house. <laughs> we oh, don't know how yes. he got back into the house, um, but uh, or he got in through all the commotion or something. But we found him in a corner and. Of course, the uh, the canine person he didn't he didn't uh, uh, bring the dog in. Uh, of course, when I called, I said I can't find him. They said you have to look everywhere, and I said I have, but I'll look again. And I looked again, and my son was still here. He was in school, and uh, I said I can't find him. This was at 10:30 at night, and so they they sent out the canine unit, and the the uh, officer came in. We did a sweep of the house without the dog. And then he called in the helicopter. So, um, you know, but then as they were leaving, and I was just a nervous wreck and all, and, of course, when we got him, he was just greeting everybody, like, oh, thanks for coming, you know. <laughs> and I was a wreck. And, and uh, as they were leaving, one of them turned to the other and said, well, that had a happy ending, not realizing until later that a lot of times they're not found at time. You know, they can die within a hundred yards from the house or something, and all. So, but uh, that did make me feel better knowing, knowing that he was safe. And um, but we, you know, you become one. Everything you do for yourself, you do for him. And you can turn around and bump into him, you know, all the time. But he's right there. And then when he's not there, you're thinking, oh my gosh, where is he? You know, I try and go to the bathroom. Where is he? And all, and and you just can't do anything. Um, like uh, Linda said, you do become isolated because it's the two of you. And we had a couple of coworkers come in to, to see him. But Gene was their boss, and they were devastated to see him that way. I mean, they were almost in tears. They never came back. Mm-hmm. No one came back. You know, they just don't understand and all. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's hard, and and we do do what I call I call it freeze framing when we we see somebody and we want them the way they were because it makes us feel more comfortable, and it really isn't anything about the person before you. It's about how how that person is now making us feel, and um, how we're allowing those emotions to roll in. And even though we think we're there for them, um, it 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 turns, and it's it's a really it's. It's very common um, for people to do that, and it happens, I think, way too much with this disease because people people don't know how to react. They don't know what to do, and, and that is something that I think 
you know, we really have to help community with um, in terms of how do I interact and how can I be a help? Because when you have purpose, you know, it just makes everything easier and people want to be part of it. Um, just like with your stamp or the radio show or whatever it might be or something on Facebook, um, people feel they can help make a difference, but we have to show them how to interact. And um, sometimes, you know, that takes a process. It's not something you can just always explain to somebody and they get it um, because it's it's such a huge ingrained emotional piece with us. Um, and, and everybody processes things different, and others will never process it. And they'll just say, I can't do this. And, and they have to back away, which is I sad. I think, to me, the overriding emotion of the disease is one of profound sadness, mm-hmm. you know, of of losing who the person was. And... Um, and also, as you progress through the disease, of people not knowing who that person was and what their contributions were. Mm-hmm. And um, I know at the very end of life, when Richard was at um geriatric hospital, a social worker was talking to me about discharging him. And I just looked at her because she was talking like I was, you know, number 33 on her list of things to do that day. And I said... Um, you know, to you, Richard is a case. To me, he's my husband. Ooh. And that was probably one of those moments for her <laughs> that, that it really well, home. You, you know, you just don't know. But, um, you know, it's it's profoundly sad. And to me, when I am on the Internet and I see other people talking about the loss of their mother or their brother or their spouse or their grandparent, of course it opens the wound. And you see this over and over and over again, and you wonder, why don't people get it? Why Why isn't there a greater sense of need and urgency mm-hmm. to um, eradicate this disease? You know, we've made such great progress with polio, with AIDS, with breast cancer. Why not Alzheimer's? Yeah, so I think it can be done, and I think it's time, and I truly hope that the National um, Alzheimer's Project Act is more than, you know, a ream of paper and that we can really put some teeth into it and some funding behind it. I second that. You know, Lori, uh, when I started in 1997, the funding for Alzheimer's research was at $325 million. The funding for Alzheimer's now is $450 million for a disease that is uh, projected to cost $200 billion to care for families with, with Alzheimer's. That's, that's really a disgrace. I mean, we have to invest more into the research of this of this uh, disease if we want to find a cure. They are making great strides uh, with the money that they have, but look how long it's taking them. Uh, we're hoping that the uh, NAPA, which is the National Alzheimer's Project Act, uh, which um, makes Alzheimer's disease a priority uh, with Congress, will work. We don't know. We're hoping that it will. 
um, those legislations that are that are out there, the HOPE Act, the Sprint Act, the Alzheimer's Breakthrough Act that it, they've been trying to pass since uh, President Reagan uh, uh, passed, and um, you know those are designed to bring in more money and and uh, more research, double the research at NIH and all, but they're just not going anywhere because they cost money. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they're just not investing um, in in the uh, in the research for Alzheimer's. You have to invest in that. It's the, um, um, oh, I forgot what I was going to say there, but anyhow, you, you, you have to invest in, in research. That's the only way we're going to find a cure. That's the only way that this country is going to, um, you know, the country will will uh, benefit from this because it's putting a, a tremendous uh, pressure on on the economy. Mm-hmm. You know that we're we're paying for for people who are ill and all. We have to do something about this. Yep, definitely, definitely. Well, I thank you two ladies so much for your time today. And um, again, it's been a very interesting conversation. I appreciate your your honesty in terms of you know, how this has touched you both um, personally and what you are doing to make a difference and make it better in others' lives. So thank you so much. Um, and and good luck with your work. And I hope our listeners will chime in and get a hold of their congressmen. We've got the numbers and things for them, and I'll be doing a blog post up on it this as well. Um, thank you, Lori. A little bit more detail there. So, thank you. Um, Oh, good, good. Um, I want to let you so much for your support. Oh, you're more than welcome. More than welcome. I do want to let people know that we have um, another show coming up here, and that will be on the let's see, on the first, which is tomorrow, and I'm going to have Bill Lightfoot on, and Bill works with uh, elder abuse, so that'll be a really good show. And then I also have a major motion picture producer on um, who's going to talk about a film he's working on called Faded Flowers. And so that should be a very interesting show. It'll be the same time as today. And on the, let's see, on the 9th, I've got an author uh, coming in to talk about her book. And, uh, well, actually, in the next couple of shows, we've got some authors coming up with some great information and then we'll be talking with Vicki Kind uh, towards the end of August. And Vicki talks about ethical issues. And uh, she's just full of wonderful, wonderful insights. And um, I think all the shows coming up will be, will be very, very exciting. We also have another Dementia Chats, uh, which is a webinar series uh, on August 11th will be the next one. The last one we had, we had a little... Um, little trouble technology-wise with uh, with the good old uh, Internet and because uh, we have people all over the U.S. Uh, plopping in, and we had a storm in one area that I think affected. So we talked over one another a little bit more than we normally would have. But please feel free to join us. And um, as always, if you enjoyed the show, we would love you to like us on Facebook and uh, tweet about us and you know go ahead and send the episode to your friends. Because again, we are all about collaboration and sharing, sharing our information, our wisdom, and our hearts um, with one another. 
And if you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to me. In the meantime, um, please remember what our memory chip teaches us all, and that's the three things to focus on. Are they safe? Are they happy? And are they pain-free? Till tomorrow. Bye now. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesti, your host of Retire Repurposed. This podcast is dedicated to help people transition into fulfilling and purposeful retirements. Retirement is a big life change. In fact, the two most dangerous years of a person's life are the year they were born and the year they retire. Few people could just flip the switch from working a career 30 or 40 plus years retiring on Friday without methodical steps to living what we call a repurposed retirement. To listen now, search Retire Repurposed on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.